What does a boy growing up in Arctic Canada know about Ireland? This is my friend Matthew. I knew we were Irish partly because of a terrible 1970s commercial for a product called Irish Spring Soap. You're a strong man, John. A mite stronger than I care to be. Then shower off with Irish Spring. Aye, the double deodorant uh -huh. soap. Helps to keep a strong man fresh. Irish Spring. It has two deodorants, not just one. Two deodorants for long-lasting protection and a fine, fresh smell. That's why I use it, too. So whenever that commercial came on television, there was a lot of anger. I mean, not, in, not, not real anger, but just a lot of, a lot of outrage. Um, and that was one of the key signs to me that, oh, we must be Irish. You know, uh, he's, he's getting so upset at the stereotype. The he who was getting so upset was Matthew's father. Okay, okay. I'm Mick Mallon. I'm a Northern Irish Protestant, atheist, with a Catholic name. And when I said to my late wife, Sunday, I'm bored with Canada, let's go home, she said, you can't. Everybody would shoot you, even the Baptist. So that's me. I took him to a party a few years ago in Vancouver, and all sorts of people were fascinated to meet this guy. He was my dad. Uh, he had this amazing career. He'd done all this stuff. Um, and at the end of the party, as we went home, after he, ex he had exhausted everyone, I said, Mick, you know, you don't have to tap dance quite so hard. You're impressive enough. Does your dad drink stout? Does your ma know you're right? Does your granny wheel the mangle round the yard? 62 years ago, Sidney Tate Mallon emigrated from Belfast to Canada. This is Mick's daughter, Amanda. When he came over in 1955, because he had a thick Irish accent, they called him a Mick. Mick Mallon may not be a household name in Ireland. To be fair, he's not exactly a household name here either. But if you were to fly north, far north, to the Eastern Arctic, Mick Mallon's practically a legend. In this sparsely populated and very remote part of the world, Mick is renowned as a linguist and as an educator. White people in the north, what they're known at among the Inuit, the doctor, the school teacher, they're not known to the They're known by the jobs they do. They, they never come out of the, the white mist. But the minute you can say even the silliest little, the, suddenly you're in focus. Even if you speak with a thick accent, you know, uh, even if you can only exchange greetings, at least people become aware of you. Nine years ago, Mick was awarded Canada's highest civilian honour, the Order of Canada, for his work in helping to preserve and revitalise Inuktitut. That's the Indigenous language of the Inuit. Not an insignificant feat for someone that came all the way from Ireland. Sure, other English speakers have learned to speak Inuktitut, but Mick's preoccupation is with the linguistics. How are Inuktitut phrases constructed? What are the bones and veins inside the language? Why does this matter? It's a new way of thinking. You get in, open the door of Inuktitut, and you come out of the other end of that with a much deeper understanding of the way we think. So it's fascinating. What the Inuit don't like about English is all this clutter, 
of little words buggering up a sentence, you know. So, so uh, be, because I am happy. Could you come up? One word. But I never said I wanted to go to Paris. And the grammar is very precise. Everything starts off life as a noun or a verb. I arranged a trip to Nunavut in the fall of 2016 to find out why mixed work in the Inuit language is significant in the Arctic. This looks like the planet Mars. That was my first impression of Nunavut from the air. No trees, no paved roads, rocky tundra as far as the eye can see. Nunavut is west of Greenland, separated by the Baffin Sea. And it's one of the world's most remote, sparsely populated places. It's got roughly the same land mass as Greenland, but half the population. In 1999, Nunavut became its own Canadian territory. Until then, it was lumped into a large tract of land known as the Northwest Territories. Good evening. Well, Canada changed overnight. The territory of Nunavut was born at midnight. And since then, there's been celebrating and ceremony to welcome the new arrival. And it's a big one, 2.2 million square kilometers, twice the size of Ontario. Most of the people who live in Nunavut are Inuit. And as Raj Alawalia reports, dignitaries from the south join them for the big party. Nunavut, or our land in Inuktitut, was created to protect the distinct language and culture of the people here. It's Canada, but the Inuit are self-governed. Nunavut feels and looks and sounds like nowhere else in the country. I land in the capital city of Iqaluit in the late afternoon. The tundra is covered in a reddish moss. I walk the tarmac towards the airport, which looks like a bright yellow 1960s-era spaceship. Mick meets me here in the terminal. He's wearing a T-shirt that says, I used to look like this, next to an image of a 30-something Mick, looking bearded and robust. I hand him a bottle of Kahlua he'd asked me to bring. Here in Iqaluit, when your supply of liquor runs out, you're out of luck until the next cargo ship comes in with your order. Mick walks slowly, but there's a mischief in his eyes, and he's a hopeless flirt. He tells me about the last time he went through airport security. So the nice young lady, I checked my advisor, I said, I want to tell you, my dear, you were the most beautiful security agent I've ever seen. I said, oh, thank you, you've made my day. I said, yes, I used to be dangerous. And she said, I can see you're still dangerous. I said, in that case, will you give me a pat dog? You know, I go. The flight from the Canadian capital city of Ottawa to Iqaluit takes just over three hours, but it's almost 3,000 Canadian dollars, just over 2,000 euros. Few Canadians ever travel this far north. Iqaluit is a boom town these days. A new airport is going up this year, a new housing estate. It's got a Wild West feel to it with unpaved roads and roaming dogs, all-terrain vehicles and construction chaos everywhere you look. We cruise down the main drag, a dusty, unpaved street. Hi, plus one. 
In the 15th century, European explorers sailed to the Arctic, the New World, to discover a trade route to Asia. British explorer Sir Martin Frobisher landed here in search of the fabled Northwest Passage, the sea route connecting the northern Atlantic and Pacific Oceans through the Arctic Ocean. Westward from the Davis Strait is there twas said to lie the sea route to the Orient for which so many died. Seeking gold and glory, leaving weathered broken bones and a long-forgotten lonely cairn of stones. Frobisher sailed right into the mouth of this bay, thinking it was a strait that would lead him all the way to China. Ah, for just one time, I would take the Northwest Passage. It's a wonder that this city exists at all. The houses are built on stilts to avoid sinking into the perpetually freezing and thawing of the soil here. We drive up dirt roads that snake over the tundra. Below us, Frobisher Bay wraps itself around the city, fishing shacks made of salvaged materials like sheet metal. Everybody knows about Saving Private Ryan. They know about the desperate casualties of Omaha Beach, which was the worst, worst place for, for American soldiers in the Second World War. But the Americans were expecting that conceivably could happen every, anywhere on D-Day, and they expected enormous casualties, and they wanted to plan. So were medics with the troops in the front line, some people would be taken care of, would be brought back to dressing stations, brought back to field hospitals, flown over to England, and then flown back to the States across the Atlantic. And the planes in those days didn't have the fuel capacity. So they landed in Iceland to refuel, they landed in Greenland, and they thought, we need to land in Baffin Island. So they sent an American officer up to talk to one of the Hudson Bay managers here, and he said, well, Nakasuk's a great hunter, and he knows everything. So they told Nakasuk what they wanted. There's a place, nobody lives there because the hunting's very bad. There's, there's fish in the river, and uh, we call it Iqaluit. The city of Iqaluit was built because of war, and it's now booming again because of another global crisis. Climate change is melting ice and making the Northwest Passage navigable. This partially explains the rush to develop Iqaluit. It's potentially about to get very busy with cruise ships and international cargo ships stopping at port. This part of the world, once so remote and isolated, is becoming a destination. The Inuit traditional way of life, of Hunting and fishing on the land is under threat. A wide bay window and mixed living room gives a panoramic view of Frobisher Bay. Hello, yes. Well, I'll finish this sentence when you get here. Most days, Mick is right here in his chair, sitting next to the window. He teaches private Inuktitut classes to newcomers to town who want to be able to chat with locals. Well, let, let, let me just do it quickly. Because to fill me, if I wrote it, would it have a key? No, no. Mick is 84 years old. Today he shuffles in slippers through his home and 
He's got a cut above his left eye from a fall he had on the ice the other day. And yet he's somehow able to strike a larger-than-life pose. He seems to command all the attention in a room. (laughs) After class, Mick pulls out an iPad and goes through his own language lessons. He's been trying to learn Irish. Okay, here's an English sentence. There's a peach and sweets in the fridge, and I'm going to try and say it in Irish, and then you'll hear the way it should be said. Tarant Feitzog, August the Milchan, Sachwisnor. Listen. Tarant Feitzog, August the Milchan, Sachwisnor. That's the best I can do. I have a fridge. Takwisnor Agam. Takwisnor Agam. Oh, oh. That's better. Good. So, how did he get from Ireland to Frobisher Bay? I was born in the year that Adolf Hitler came to power on Einstein's birthday. Do you want me to give you the details or can you look it up on the website? I can look it up, but say what year. (laughs) That was uh, the 14th of March, 1933. My father was briefly in the middle class, we're we're, uh, a working class background. He sent me to uh, Campbell College, Belfast. And you know the British thing, the old school tie? In 1954, Dr. McCullough became the senior tutor of Queen's College, Cambridge. Mick got what seemed like a lucky break at the time. I got a scholarship there, funnily enough, huh? and several more of us, uh, until there was quite a collection of Irish guys in Queen's College, Cambridge. Queen's College, Cambridge is a prestigious college of the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. I was out of my depth, I believe. I was... Uh, basically working class. I was overwhelmed by the English. So I didn't, I got through the place. I should have gone to Trinity College, Dublin, and learned how to be a better Irishman. By 1954, Mick had returned to Belfast with a Bachelor of Arts degree. He applied for lots of jobs in Belfast. There was no bloody work I could get. His professional life may not have been going well, but he was finding happiness in his personal life. There was a, a party once, I went off, and here was this sweet young Cynthia Cahey, uh, who was the girlfriend of a fellow I didn't like much. But she flirted with me outrageously. And eventually she dropped the boyfriend the other way around. But meanwhile, I got an offer of a desk from a desperate private school in Lakefield, Ontario, who couldn't find anybody else for 200 bucks a month. And uh, I, I came there. From 1955 onwards, Mick lived in Canada and eventually earned a master's in linguistics. And when I came to to Canada, uh, Cynthia came out a year later to my... By that time, I'd been fired from... They they wanted to fire me, but they couldn't get anybody else for 200 So it was very precariously off financially. Cynthia came from Ireland to be with Mick, and she almost changed her mind when she found out he'd been fired. They were married in Ottawa, Canada in 1955. Took a teaching job in Ottawa. It's all set to be a nice, boring high school teacher of English. And we moved apartments. And that changed our entire life. The new neighbours had lived and worked in the Canadian Arctic. Why don't we go north for a year or two? Changed our entire life. Everything from then on. Mick found a job teaching in Arctic Quebec in northeast Canada and he took it upon himself to try to learn Inuktitut. Here's a photograph of Mick in northern Quebec on his way to Pervernituk in Arctic Quebec. That's me with uh, a business suit 
a briefcase and an umbrella waiting to get on the plane of Great Well River to get. And I posed like a gentleman. I'm, I'm good at that. Well, there wasn't much truth to it, but I was good at it. In 1958, when Mick and Cynthia arrived in Arctic Quebec, a village called Pervernituk, a couple hundred Inuit were living traditionally, hunting on the sea and ice. Some still lived in snow huts and sealskin tents. Here's another photograph. Pervernituk. Uh, 1962, Cynthia with her daughter and a collection of local dogs. Cynthia loved dogs, and the husky dogs would cut loose, get loose from their chains, and rush over and, and, and visit us. Mick discovered that teaching in the Arctic meant you had to subscribe to the rhythms of nature. For instance, if there were geese to hunt, students would probably not show up to class. Mick was okay with this. It gave him more time to walk on the tundra, something that he loved to do. In the tundra, every step is a different... At any place you go to, you can go to the right, walk on that rock, go to the left, and, and it's decision. You can wander all over the place. So I loved the walks. I loved the walks there. There's a nice tweed color to the, the tundra. Uh, like Irish tweed. It also led him to a new nickname. The standard one was just Ely Sayi, the teacher. That started in Bavinglitum. But the one I really liked, I discovered I was called, covered Pishu Sok, the guy who walks a lot. But if the landscape in Arctic Canada was appealing, dealing with the education authorities was not. Mick found dealing with his administrators difficult, and so he and Cynthia decided to go for a complete change of scene and move to Borneo. A big, big shift for them, but almost traumatic for their daughter Amanda, whose first language was actually Inuktitut. That was the language that I heard all around me. Uh, in fact, apparently I disrespected my dad. We left we left Puvongituk. We went down to Ottawa. We were getting ready to go to Borneo, and my mom had brought my sister and I out early. And I had gone to some birthday party, and I was speaking in Eskimo because it was my first language, and the kids started teasing me, and I reacted to the unfairness of it all and shut down. So when my dad arrived about a month later, Cynthia said to him, Mandy, stop speaking Eskimo. you got to get her going. And so he tried to initiate a dialogue with me, and apparently my response was, your Eskimo isn't good enough. So with that sort of snobbery, I locked myself out of the... Uh, complete fluency I had, and then we moved to Borneo. For five years, Mick taught English at a school in Borneo and began learning how to speak Malay, the local language. Cynthia had had another child, Matthew, and life was good for the family, and they may have stayed in Borneo had the Arctic not come calling again. I was offered the job of setting up the Eskimo language school in Rankin Inlet. Uh, My knowledge wasn't tremendous, but I was committed to bluffing. From tropical Borneo to Rankin Inlet in northwest Canada with three children in tow, Rankin Inlet is a windswept village with an average winter temperature of minus 40 degrees. At this point, Mick was far from being an expert in the Eskimo language. But as a budding linguist, he was developing an ability to deconstruct language down to its building blocks. At the Eskimo Language School, Mick was in charge of teaching the white bureaucrats how to converse in Inuktitut. And it so happened that one week he was asked to be a substitute teacher for a group of Inuit students. Alexina Kublu was one of those students. Here we are, 
a class, I think there were 14 of us, a class of 14, we're all Inuit, we all speak Inuktitut, and we're in teacher education, and we are going to be given a class on the Eskimo language by a Kalunak. That's a white person. And was kind of, huh? So Mick was telling us about the grammar of Inuktitut, and I was going, oh, so that's why we, this, that's where this happens. Oh, okay. Louise Flaherty was another one of the young teachers Mick taught in the early days of the Arctic Teachers College. She's now the director of Inuit Language and Culture Programs at Nunavut Arctic College. He taught us the linguistic courses um, in Inuktitut. At the time, I was pretty amazed because uh, as a student, very young student, you're pretty uh, confident in your language. But when you have uh, an outsider who is not an Inuk teaching the courses and dissecting our language, you were, like I was, tempted to challenge him and prove him wrong, but you couldn't prove Mick wrong. He had all the uh, linguistics, the understandings of our orthography and phonology um, to a very high level. And um, so uh, we did learn that he knew what he was doing. So uh, as an Inuk, when you have, uh, like speaking in Inuktitut, it's always holistic, right? And so you never had to look at the pieces and look at the morphemes to understand what they may mean. I I really enjoyed those courses, and I think that's why I ended up in this division. This is a former language commissioner of Nunavut, Sandra Ayutuk. He was the first one to develop textbooks for teaching the language. So I think he makes us see and have more passion in terms of just how unique our language is and not to take it for granted uh, almost and because um, he's so passionate about what he does. Mick also met David Willman, a young British teacher who had settled in Iqaluit. Well, my earliest memory of meeting Mick was riding to him to try and get on his course, which was called the Introductory Inuktitut at the Eskimo Language School in Rankin Inlet. I'd learned in my first year in the North that it was very difficult to teach children who didn't understand English anything, but the obvious answer was they needed to be taught in their own language, which is fairly obvious in any country anyway. When their paths crossed again several years later, Wilman and Mick were colleagues. They'd convinced a government minister that the Inuit needed a university-level teaching training program here in Iqaluit. Seven or eight years prior to that, but in 1980, August, when we actually came together like this and started working together, there were 12 Inuit teachers in the whole of the Eastern Arctic, 12, where there were over 150 classrooms where Inuit teachers were needed. As I say, by the time Mick retired, we had over 100 Inuit teachers who graduated. At home, the Mallins now had three children. The youngest, my friend Matthew, recalls that it was often bizarre trying to place himself as Irish as a kid in the Arctic. We were always very aware of the fact that we were of Irish descent. My father and mother... Uh, went back to Ireland fairly regularly. There was always news coming over. It was the height of the troubles. So, you know, there were always these sort of alarming or or darkly funny stories. 
A realization came by way of the American folk singer Judy Collins. And she, one of her records, had an Irish song on it. It was a rebel anthem of some sort. I can't remember exactly which one. It might have been the Patriot Game or something like that. And one day I was singing along to it as it was on, and my mother came around the corner from the kitchen and said, you can't really sing that song. We're not that kind of Irish. And that was the first sort of, oh, we're not the romantic ones? We're not the revolutionary, the ones with all the, you know, <clears throat> at the time, relatively good press? We're the, we're the bad ones. We're the wrong ones. The love of one's country is a terrible thing. It banishes My father is a <clears throat> very much a liberal Protestant who theorizes that if he had stayed in Ireland during the height of the Troubles, he would not have survived because he's mouthy and, and opinionated. In the summer of 1986, Mick and Cynthia retired. But within a year, Cynthia began showing signs of Alzheimer's disease. Two years later, when she needed more care than Mick could give at home, he moved her into a nursing home. Over the course of the next decade, Mick continued to help care for Cynthia in the nursing home. But his relationship with his former student and now colleague, Alexina Kublu, became romantic, and they would visit Cynthia together in the nursing home. Cynthia died in 1998, and Mick married Alexina two years later. Mick is two decades older than Alexina, but they're united in their passion for the language. Today, Mick is walking down the hallway of the Nunavut Arctic College. He teaches Inuktitut language classes whenever he can because he loves to teach and also because he seems to be perpetually broke. His kids say he's always been terrible with money, but he's also generous with what he has. Hi, sir. Remarkably well for an old man. Oh, well, that's good. They're putting you right to work, are they? I for uh, Well, I, <laughs> I, I, need, yeah. I need contracts. You need contracts. Have you got any contracts going? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Me and you are going to fight over. <laughs> Here we are. And, ah, good. Did you catch that? High four. Give me a high four. In 2007, he lost a small finger to frostbite. One February afternoon on his regular walk with the dogs, he lost his balance and fell, then laid on the frozen rock for nine hours. Eventually, he was found with a body temperature so low he came close to dying from exposure. He loves to tell the long version of this story at dinner parties, but he's lost something he loved about living here. One of the problems with what I like here is that I'm physically, uh, I don't walk where I had to fall. I can't walk on tundra anymore. I don't have a good sense of balance. And what I really loved about here was walking on the tundra. In Akaluit, the Legion is a place to go for live music. 
On a Friday evening, you're likely to be drinking next to a prominent Nunavut politician, as well as a local nurse. Everyone comes here for a steak and to do some dancing. And when they're not on tour, the jerry cans play at the Iqaluit Legion. Cans are fronted by a couple, Nancy Mike and Andrew Morrison. Despite their rock and roll stage presence, they're very thoughtful about the importance of speaking Inuktitut in the home. And their kids talk about country food, like fish and caribou, as easily as they talk about Star Wars and Inuktitut. Inuktitut being my first language, uh, I, I think it's very important for my kids to speak it as well, not only to understand what I'm saying, but also to understand um, how I feel or how they, you know, kind of connect with each other that way in terms of feelings and understanding um, where we come from and what our culture is. And I think it's very important to to know the language in order to really fully understand um, our culture. For me, I'm non-Inuk, I'm white. I moved here when I was two years old, but English is my first language and I was raised in English. And I only started really becoming passionate about learning Inuk to do. Sorry. When we started to have kids, I met Nancy's father was a really big influence to me. He didn't speak English and he uh, was very, passionate about preserving the language, not in any formal way, but just within his family and just making sure that that part of his life was kept passing on to the next generation. So he always would tell me to speak Inuktitut, tell the siblings to speak Inuktitut to me. And then he would always, I know that part of that was making sure that when we had kids together, that I would be able to contribute to them learning Inuktitut as well. And I think that's a really important thing as a non-Inuk living in an Inuit community to kind of take those steps and be passionate about doing that. Andrew doesn't know Mick personally, but acknowledges him for his work in the language. His work is pretty legendary, actually, and I mean that with all the compliments because he has a very good way of kind of making Inuktitut very accessible to sort of Western-based learners and breaking it down and figuring out the, gr the grammar. So it's been super helpful to me now, and now we're kind of writing songs in Inuktitut and really kind of... Um, very active in the community across Nunavut and kind of well known for doing what we do and so we're very thankful to Mick in that sense because he was the the, the material that he created was it's a major contribution to sort of helping non-Inuktitut speakers as a departure point an introductory point to learn the language. <laughs> Sunday night, going into Mick and Kublu's.
I'm invited over to Mick and Kublu's house for dinner. Mick's really excited about showing me the new app he's got for learning Irish on his iPad. I've got my iPad ready. I've got something I'm supposed to translate. I press the button and listen to it. Ah, Hannah. The ah is a separate word meaning his. Hannah head is a word for grandfather. Now listen to it. Hannah head. Now I'm going to spell the Hannah head part. S H E N A T H A I R. I have to do two things when I want to learn an Irish word. First of all, I have to hear it and pronounce it, and then I have to look at the spelling system and remember how to spell it. So this one, when I want to spell it, I pronounce it Shiana, Shiana Hat Hair. That's the spelling. Listen to the sound again. Ahana Head. So that's the joys of learning Irish by an expert in a language like Inuktitut. For 60 years, Mick has dedicated his career and his life to the Arctic. His daughter Amanda thinks Canada offered him a chance to work in languages. In 1955, 54, when they came over, there was no opportunity for him at all to do anything with his linguistic abilities. He had learned all the European languages. There wasn't anything. Um, Gaelic in Northern Ireland at that time, I am not aware of it. It certainly wasn't part of his history. So if he'd stayed in Ireland, he would not be a linguist. He did the very best thing for him. He came to Canada. He was an outsider, and he was doing the very best he could to facilitate the language. When I was watching him run the Eskimo Language School in Rankin Inlet, his mantra always was, if I'm successful, I'll work my way out of a job. In Canada, there are about eight guys, white guys, who could claim to be experts in the structure of the Inuktitut language. That's the politically correct term for Eskimo. So eight of us, three of us are dead, and I'm 84, and there's not that much left of me. But I tell you, Inuktitut, fascinating language. It makes English look like a train wreck. Mick's sigh isn't just about his age. He's worried about the survival of the language. My basic hope is that the language will survive. It will change, it will develop, but I hope it survives. In the 18 years since Nunavut became its own territory, the use of Inuktitut has declined by 12%. And there are signs of hope. There definitely are signs of hope. There are young Inuit who are moving into the government and becoming the bosses. There are young Inuit who are starting to think that Inuktitut is a really neat thing to be able to speak. There are parents who will talk to their children at home in the language. All of that kind of thing is necessary if the language is not going to disappear as hundreds of languages disappear. They disappear the rate of disappearance of languages, native languages around the world is immense. Inuktitut has a hope of surviving. Would he do it all again? If I had the chance to go back and do everything all over again, I would not change anything that happened because the later stage in my life, click, 
I got involved with the Arctic, and that changed my entire life. And yet, here's Mick now, after all these years trying to learn Irish. And these days, what I've become, I'm afraid to say, is a typical of American of Irish descent who were romantically Irish. And I, I, I'm romantically Irish. I've started to try and learn Irish again. What a difficult language that is. And here I am. She was lovely and fair as a rose of the summer. But was not her beauty that won her for me. T'was a love in her eyes that so gentle did shine there that made me love Mary, the rose of Trolley. My mother always said, a real Irish said, has a kind of a nyuff in his voice. A what in his voice? A nyuff. Nyuff? The rose of Trolley. 